0: Welcome back to the Sports Politica Podcast, the show that guides you through the underbelly of sports, power and politics. It's been a few weeks since our last episode and I appreciate all your patience as I took some time off to rest and recuperate during the holidays. It was a much needed break after what was really a roller coaster 2023. Now to kick this year off. I decided to bring you an interview and it's one I've been waiting a while to do. It's with Stannis Alsberg, the senior analyst for Play the Game. It's a Danish initiative that, in its own words, aims to raise the ethical standards of sport and promote democracy, transparency and freedom of expression in world sport. So Stannis is a guest lecturer at the Department of Nutrition, Exercise and Sport at the University of Copenhagen. He's also the recipient of the Gerlov Award, a prestigious prize given in order to encourage freedom of expression and democracy and to support initiatives that dare dispute the established sports political order. So I've been meaning to interview Stannis for a while now, especially ever since he published this groundbreaking piece of research titled The Power Players Behind Saudi Arabia's Sports Strategy. His research, which mapped out the inner circle behind Saudi Arabia's sports endeavour and revealed more than 300 sponsorships that Saudi has and maintains in sports, a a tactic that it uses really to expand its influence in the world of sports, his research really has been tremendously useful to my own work over the past few months. In this discussion you're going to hear Stanis discuss his research as well as the continued expansion of Saudi's influence in sports. We also discuss things such as, you know, the lessons learned from Qatar in 2022 at the World Cup and what fans, journalists and activists can do to sort of center human rights ahead of the 2034 World Cup in Saudi Arabia. So without further ado, let's get started. Hi, Stannis. It's wonderful to have you on the Sports Political Podcast. How are you?
1: I'm good, thank you, and thanks for having me. I'm very excited. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Listen, I've, I've
0: known you for a while now, and you and I have had the opportunity to have uh, multiple conversations about Saudi and Saudi's influence in the world of sports. I know you and I share a lot of the same opinions and are quite like-minded in our approach, and it's really it's really great to see another kindred spirit who's so interested in sort of uncovering and unveiling what's going on in Saudi's unprecedented sports drive here, really. So, based on that, I'd like you to start off by telling me about your recently completed research project, which has been called the Power Players Behind Saudi's Sports Strategy. In this, you sort of mapped the inner circle of, of Saudi sports strategy. So, talk to me about this a bit.
1: Yeah, well, the idea came actually during the World Cup in, in Qatar, because... I thought that we were talking a lot about the human rights issues that were connected to the World Cup in Qatar, which I think is a good thing. I think it was the first time in modern history that we really started to debate the relationship or the connection between sport and human rights issues. So it was a good thing. But what always, but what also struck me was that it was sort of the only agenda that we were talking about through the last couple of years that was the rumor human, human rights connected to the world cup in qatar and from our point of view in play the game where i work it's a good thing to talk about human rights we do that a, a lot we also do that on our, our international conferences but our main perspective and our expertise is in good governance in in uh, broadly speaking in international politics and i came to realize that no one was discussing the governance issues related to Qatar. And then right after the World Cup in Qatar, it was like that the EMEA of Qatar uh, said to uh, Mohammed bin Salman from Saudi Arabia, well, now it's your turn. Uh, please uh, take over the keys and uh, continue what we have started in international sports politics. And I must say, I was pretty surprised how much they have engaged in sport for the last uh, year or so in in Saudi Arabia. The speed that they have started to invest um, surprised me a little bit. And then I wanted to demonstrate that we all knew about the human rights issues in Saudi Arabia. So that was really not our starting point for our research project. That was the governance issues related to all these investments from uh, the regime in Saudi Arabia. And while much has been said about Mohammed bin Salman and his uh, sports endeavor, we wanted to highlight who are the core people uh, just right under him that are also very influential in not just their sporting strategy, but in their political agenda in total. So that was really our main focus for the research project and... Then we also wanted to highlight all the many sponsorships that were connected to those people uh, that we found in in our uh, data set.
0: This is all really, really fascinating. You mentioned a lot of really, really interesting things there. I'd like to just cut in and ask you one question. You mentioned specifically that Saudi, you were really surprised by the sort of the speeds and the uh, the 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 drive recently that Saudi Arabia has has pushed in the past year. Why the last year specifically? Given that we have seen that Saudi Arabia sort of started dipping its toes into into you know soft power and sports really, and this part of this Vision 2030 master plan. And around 2016 2017, including you know lobbying attempts in the United States, etc. This is where they started really talking to all major. Uh, sports organizations. So why the last year specifically, Stanis?
1: Yeah, I think it's based on what they did with the National Football League and the so-called privatization of sport in Saudi Arabia. It's also connected to uh, the company SRJ Sports Investment because we knew that they were engaged in hosting big sporting events. We knew that they wanted All these kinds of big sporting events uh, to the country, Uh, but that's quite similar to what we have seen from the region. It's similar to all kind of countries, autocratic or democratic nations. They want to host the biggest sporting events, so it's not that. uh, That was not surprising for me. The surprising thing was that they started to invest so many money into the national football league, and that they succeeded so easily convincing some of the best players in the world to head to Saudi Arabia. And the next thing was that on top of the massive debate we had about Qatar, FIFA and autocratic uh, nations and states investments in world sport uh, I was thinking that it might not be this year that FIFA would start to create such a big diplomatic relationship with the regime in Saudi Arabia. We know that uh, President Infantino has been in Saudi Arabia a couple of times over the last couple of years. But I was actually a bit surprised that FIFA uh, quite quickly handed them the uh, Club World Cup and then now de facto also has handed them the uh, FIFA World Cup in 2034. And then I must say, it it also surprises me that it seems like all kind of sports federations is just rolling out the red carpet for Mohammed bin Salman. There's no one stopping them, Uh, not that I believed uh, that the world of sport was the ones who were going to stop an autocratic leader from investment, uh, invest in world sport, but I was still a little bit surprised about the speed that they have I mean they are the biggest player in in world sports at the moment and they kind of turned it over at night
0: they're in complete control of multiple i'd say sports at the moment beyond football it's incredible to me watching saudi arabia completely own a sport like boxing right now all the major Boxing, at least heavyweight showdowns are currently taking place in Saudi Arabia. And you even have promoters like Eddie Hearn referring to, you know, Turkish Sheik, uh, the head of the General Entertainment Authority, as his excellency. I like, just I mean I had to chuckle really when I saw that uh, that tweet a little earlier. I don't know if you got a chance to see that or if you're even really following boxing, but I just had to laugh at Turki Sheikh really being referred to now just generally by sports leaders as his excellency. This really in some ways sort of encapsulates the growing influence of Saudi Arabian sports. Do you think this uh, what, what you're discussing here, the sort of the speed and sort of the willingness for federations to roll over and roll out the red carpet for Saudi Arabia, Is this reflective of Saudi's growing influence? And if so, how are they achieving this influence exactly?
1: Well, first of all, I think we have to realize that Saudi Arabia is uh, it's a whole nother ball game than Qatar was. They are a much bigger player in international politics in general. They have much more of the so-called hard power if they want, both military and economic power. And uh, right now they are also succeeding in creating what we usually talk about as soft power, you know, another power source where they want to create a more picturesque image of the country and convince people that there is something great about Saudi Arabia and not be associated with the murder of Khashoggi and their human rights abuses. Uh, I, I just have to go back uh, to, to the boxing thing because, well, first of all, I'm a, I'm a huge sports fan. Uh, most people are surprised when I, when I tell them so because of the work that we do, which is Mainly just based around the darker sides uh, of sports, so I'm always the one bringing the negative uh, <laughs> aspects uh, into into light from from world of sport. But I'm a huge sports fan, and I've also been following boxing and um, also esports, which is another sport that Saudi Arabia is actually uh, owning at the moment. And in terms of uh, the companies called ESL and FACEIT, which was the two big players in uh, the e sector, they bought the both companies a, c- a couple of years ago and just merged uh, them together. Uh, and that's one of the real integrity issues uh, I have to highlight in terms of Saudi Arabia. Because of this SRJ investment company, they not only want to bring big sporting events to the country, they want to create their own sporting events. And There's a lot of talk in uh, the region that I'm from, uh, moment, about this so-called European Super League uh, in football, and people are so worried about it. What I'm worried about is that Saudi Arabia will create what we could call uh, the Global Super League. They will just invent a new uh, football tournament if they want to. And all the money that they can bring into such a tournament will bring all the big clubs to, to such a tournament. And we see at the moment, that there is no teams that don't want to go to Saudi Arabia. They have the Spanish Football Cup uh, in in football. They have the Italian Super Cup. They had or have the Turkey Super Cup, uh, which was a whole other story. Uh, but uh, that's just uh, the way things are going at the moment. And the next sport for Saudi Arabia, which is a bit surprising uh, to me, uh, is of course tennis.
0: I'm so glad you mentioned tennis because I knew we were going to get onto this at some point, but I am with you there. I do find it as a as a major tennis fan and I, I don't even know how many of my own, you know, readers at Sports Public actually know this, but I got into uh, sports journalism actually starting out as a tennis writer, not even a mixed martial arts writer. It was actually in the world of tennis and it was a sport that I watched since I was a kid. And for me personally, the, the major rivalry of my childhood was Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. That—that that is my childhood sports encapsulated to an extent. The amount of times I watched those two go head to head, and I remember in Egypt we'd have this discussion: "Are you are you for Roger? Are you with Rafa? That's always the discussion. And watching, you know, Roger Federer retire and you know, uh, ride off into the sunset the way he did—that's that's a legacy personified. And sometimes, you know, when I'm asked all the time, you're like, "Kerim, you're always uncovering the dark side of sports. You know, it seems that every time I mention an athlete to you, you've got something to say that, you know, breaks my heart about that athlete. Who is the athlete that you don't have something to say of? And I used to be able to say Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. We can still say Roger Federer, which is, by the way, just remarkable to be someone of that influence and to not have stains your legacy. But unfortunately, Rafael Nadal now doesn't get to ride off into the sunset. I'd really like to talk to you about one specific thing when it comes to to, to Nadal. You know that I did some reporting with Tariq Panja uh, for the New York Times, where we discussed and and analyzed uh, Leo Messi's uh, tourism ambassadorship contract with Saudi Arabia's tourism authority. Within that contract, there was a clause saying that Uh, Leo Messi could not tarnish Saudi Arabia's reputation. Basically, it was a non-disparagement clause. Are we expecting, and and here we're just speculating, I understand at this point, you don't have the contract with you. But is this something you think Saudi Arabia is inserting into all these different relationships it's building with major athletes like Rafael Nadal?
1: Well, first of all, the research you did there with Tariq Pandya uh, was actually groundbreaking in the debate about authoritarian regimes into world of sport but cause what play the game has raised a flag uh, about for years is the lack of freedom of speech in authoritarian regimes and that is one of our core values so um, when you did your story it kind of fueled our arguments into uh, all this international sports political uh, debate uh, because i must say it's it's very disturbing throughout history in sports politics, and I'm also a historian from the University of Copenhagen, Um, what we have seen is that athletes' voices has just been shut down throughout history. And uh, then it's, we are in an area where we have seen uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, we have seen how both uh, the NBA and the the WNBA has used their voices on societal matters we have seen numerous athletes throughout the last couple of years starting to use their voice for societal changes then we see autocratic regimes invest massively into the world of sport and I think we can uh, say that they are not uh, famous for the freedom of speech um, and <laughs> And then when you break your story, it just demonstrates how far they will go to shut athletes' voices down. They do not want anyone to talk about their dirty laundry. And I believe that it is in a lot of other contracts. Of course, we don't know. But if it's in Messi's, who is not an athlete who is famous for speaking out loud on societal matters, I can't imagine that it isn't in any other contracts. So Uh, And what we have seen and what would fuel that argument even further is that we have not seen any athletes playing in Saudi Arabia, being on contracts uh, in Saudi Arabia, speak out loud about the human rights issues. They speak out loud about all the good things that Mohammed bin Salman and the Saudi regime uh, are doing. We have seen Ronaldo. Uh, using his social media in favor of Mohammed bin Salman. And we now see Rafael Nadal from the tennis world engage with the state of Saudi Arabia. And it is very disturbing. Um, So, yeah.
0: It really is uh, very interesting because I think people traditionally would have thought that if Saudi Arabia is going to try and silence athletes, that they'd actually be attempting to intimidate them, like actually, you know, through physical means or something like that. That's what you'd expect generally from a dictatorship. What we're learning really is that Saudi's major threat right now in in this modern world is actually litigation. And when we think of the sort of the, the, the capitalist societies we're in and the profit-driven uh, sports industry, I think that's a significant threat, isn't it? Like litigation really is the way to keep Athletes uh, silent. It gives them consequence. Money can be lost here if I speak out. Is it really worth it? What can I change? What a way to sow doubt into even uh, the the most you know previously active uh, proponents of human rights, right? I we have to at this point, I think, really mention even if briefly the the escapade that uh, of what happened to Jordan Henderson over the past few months. I mean, talk about a, a athlete who was. And, of course, for those who don't know, Jordan Henderson uh, was the captain of, of Liverpool in the English Premier League and and was a significant member of, of the, the England squad overall. We're talking about one of the most well-known English football players here. He was also a major proponent and an activist and outspoken for the LGBTQ plus community. He'd wear the armbands. Nobody forced him to do that. He wanted to come out and make those statements and and and... And, and speak out in support of, of, of those fans, these minority groups, and then he sort of sells out instantly and turns his back on that community in many ways by signing with the Saudi Pro League. And he makes some truly outlandish statements, I have to say, when you say things like, oh, I, I'm hoping to go and change things. Are you joking? <laughs> Do you really actually believe that? Because I don't know, in this case, what's worse than If you actually believe that, you know, your just your existence is enough to change a society, or if you think the rest of us are that stupid to believe something like that. But beyond that now, just, what, three, four months into his tenure in Saudi Arabia, we find out that it seems that Jordan Henderson is leaving al-Atafaq and is moving to Ajax, it seems. So he's truly given up on this Saudi experiment. So from that, I'd like to I'd like to sort of understand here this kind of is twofold. What does that mean, really, when we're seeing athletes actually uh, sort of turn around and 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 sort of walk try and attempt to sort of walk back those steps? Is this something that was done out of out of personal means? Do you think this is going to be something we see more frequently in Saudi Arabia? What I really want to know is, do they have this major control over these athletes? We're seeing so many go over, but is this going to last? And is Jordan Henderson
1: sort of the beginning of the dominoes falling the other way? Yeah, well, I think that that surprises me. I have to be (laughs) honest, because it's it's a pretty quick turnaround. I, I mean, he knew what was going on in Saudi Arabia. He knew what terms he was getting into uh, when he went to Saudi Arabia. And the thing about going to Saudi Arabia to make change as a football player, either you are naive or you have very, very bad PR consultants, because I mean, no one believes in that for a second. And I mean, it's also been the mistake of so-called democratic sports federations and sports leaders in the argument about the winter olympics in beijing in 2022 the qatar world cup and now saudi arabia's huge investment is that through dialogue we can change saudi arabia into a more democratic modern country um i actually do believe that sport can do some good things. And it also, and I also believe in the democratic dialogue. In fact, I think that there is a democratic dialogue between people who are doing sports uh, with each other. I mean, uh, when people face each other, there is some sort, certain dialogue between the two people, the fight that they are getting into. Uh, but that's another story. I, I, I just want to say that if we believe that Mohammed bin Salman wants to be changed we're getting down a really 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 bad path he wants to change us not the other way around he doesn't look at a democratic nation like denmark and think oh i want i want that i i would i would like uh, saudi arabia to be like the society in denmark Uh, not at all not at all and uh, that's the big mistake because we think that we can hand them these big sporting events. I will never forget Jacques rock the former president on the International Olympic Committee when Beijing was awarded the 2008 uh, Olympic. He was talking about the Olympic Games as a force for good, okay. uh, meaning that if we were giving them these big sporting events, maybe it could create change in the nation. It was the same story about the Sachi Olympics in Russia It could create change in the Russian society. It was the same with the World Cup in Russia. And what history has told us through the last 20 years is that it has actually gotten worse in these states that has received these big sporting events. So I don't believe in that in Saudi Arabia. But I also don't believe that we should just boycott these countries. I think we should turn it all around just for a bit. If Saudi Arabia wants to host the World Cup, I'm all for it. I believe that sporting events should be able to be hosted in all countries around the world, maybe with a few uh, exceptions, but in general and in principle. But I think it should be on the right terms and on the right criteria. So if you have human rights as a criteria in the awarding of an event, you have to look at that criteria. And Saudi Arabia then would not be able to host an event like the World Cup. And I think that's the big mistake. If sport really wants to use its power to make change in the world, they should use it before and not be used by these autocratic regimes.
0: You make some excellent points there, stanis uh, I, I do I do wonder, though, sometimes uh, who gets to be sort of the moral arbitrator of human rights in 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 the world of sports in general really uh, a quick example here a lot of the you know the countries that point the finger at Saudi Arabia you know the, the United States uh, the United Kingdom these are also countries that engage in in selling arms to Saudi Arabia how do we how do we wrap our heads around that the fact that you may have actual sports institutions you have good people in all these countries who are trying to you know apply pressure and and bring the focus to human rights yet the 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 you know the stakeholders that actually matter in the country that have sway the politicians are doing the exact opposite how then can we say that well for instance the west which has has long claimed itself as a, as a bastion of of democracy and human rights do they still get to be the moral arbitrators when they are in fact helping uh, supply and empower and embolden authoritarian regimes. This is where it gets a bit tricky, I think. What do you think?
1: Yeah, uh, it is tricky. But, but uh, uh, I believe that sports has its own values, own mm. core values that it has been based on for centuries. And if they do believe that those values, which they don't miss a chance to speak about when they host all the big... Uh, awards and events and so on that there's uh, room for all no to racism lgbtqi communities are very welcomed in the world of sport uh, and so on they should really stand on those core values it's it's not that difficult i mean if saudi Arabia wants to host the sporting event we cannot change the human rights situation throughout the whole country it's impossible and if we do believe sport can play just a minimal role in fostering the values that sports claim to represent, then we should at least guarantee that when we build stadiums, hotels, restaurants, host the sporting events, those values that sports want to represent uh, can flourish us throughout those weeks. The argument against that is, of course, then we will help these autocratic regimes to create a picturesque image for three weeks when they host the World Cup. And yes, that is that is also a consequence about, about this. But it's a starting point. As we see it now, we will go to Saudi Arabia in uh, 2034. There will be no freedom of speech, no free press, uh, and the sporting world it. They can't. It. It must not happen again. What happened in Qatar. It. It would simply be a big, big failure once again. But I. But I agree. Who should determine who fulfill the right human rights criterias? And of course, FIFA or the IOC should have an independent, uh, some sort of independent council that would assess the human rights situations in these countries. It can't be FIFA themselves.
0: Well, that's exactly it really, because when we talk about influence, and I really think I think a lot, and I ponder a lot about your research sometimes, and I go through your excellent Excel sheet, which we really map out just how extensive Saudi Arabia's influences through its sponsorships and through its really just, just the amount of stakeholders that are involved and how many federations this crosses over it makes you wonder, really, how how do you get away from that conflict of interest, which is undoubtedly going to impact how these institutions... Uh, you know react and handle saudi arabia it's like any other conflict of interest i think as a journalist you're not supposed to be taking you know money from the sport that you're working for you're not supposed to accept say flight accommodations or anything like that there's a reason behind that it's not sort of just like uh, old school uh, high and mighty values or something like that the truth is is that once you've been paid for you know, you've been given some sort of incentive it's very unlikely that you will be uh, willing, as willing to be as critical of your hosts, right? They've done something for you. They brought you all this distance, et cetera. Why would you criticize them? It feels like Saudi has done that on a major scale, <laughs> in a way. With all these sponsorships, with all these investments, with all this you know, cash injection and cash flow uh, occurring across sports, really a gold rush at this point, why would all these different sports and governing bodies like FIFA and the IOC bite the hand that feeds them?
1: Well, the first thing you 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 ask, what can we do about these conflict of interest? The interesting part with that is that most of the sports federations actually have statutes and rules that would prevent this, <laughs> but they, they turn a blind eye. I mean, the IOC states in their in their charter and the, and the rules that uh, sport always must remain political neutru- neutral. <laughs> They talk about the so-called autonomy of sport, which we know, of course, is, is not real uh, in real, real politics, uh, but they do have the rules for it. And then on the other hand, uh, we have Princess Rima, uh, who is a member of the IOC and also uh, a part of the royal family in, in Saudi Arabia and is also the ambassador to the United States. How can that even happen? I mean, the IOC could just say, well, we can't have that. We can't have political influence uh, from a high-ranking royal member uh, from the regime in Saudi Arabia uh, to sit in, in the IOC. But the funny story is that the IOC and their executives love to be around royal people. So it's it's just a paradox that no one seems to be willing to uh, sort out but the answer to, to your question is it should be quite easy because the rules are there there must't be no political uh, interference into the IOC and the National Olympic uh, committees uh, but play the game did some research a couple of years ago where we demonstrated I I believe it was that uh, in seven in that one in seven national Olympic committees uh, was politically dependent on his government. So there you have it, it's, it's no one wants to, I mean, uh, the president of Belarus, uh, uh, Lukashenko was also the president from, for the national Olympic committee for mm-hmm. over 20 years. So it should be quite easy. Of course, it serves sports no good that these leaders are also the leaders of uh, the sports federations but
0: they're well aware that's the thing it not like we're going to be able to distance these these sports these these world leaders from sports because they're well aware of the value of associating with sports i mean we we are in an age now where i think there's more recognition of this you know so-called sports washing term and and the discussion around soft power in sports more than i've i've seen in a long time and i've been doing this for for about 10 years now uh, but this is, none of this is really that new. At the end of the day, like we know that sports that, that leaders have attached themselves to sports for a very long time and have associated with the sports that would bring them the most popularity. In many cases across the Arab world, that would have been football, right? And like football was such a key component here. So watching Mohammed bin Salman utilize football now, I find is really interesting. And of course, it goes well beyond sports watching. I think the term I really enjoy when it comes to watching his progression of the Saudi Pro League is almost bread and circuses he's really just keeping his his uh, his people you know you know comfortable and happy and entertained at the moment because when you have a population that's you know 50% under the age of 35 that's a lot of people you got to keep entertained or else anything can really happen right egypt my country learned this the hard way i think i grew up around the egyptian ultras the 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 ultras Ahlewi, which is a hardcore football fan group anti-racist anti-fascist pro 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 uh, revolution these were revolutionaries in waiting and in around 2007 we they united as this group and i had cousins and family members involved and i would attend football matches with them and the They always targeted the police and the government and with slogans and chants. Eventually, and the government feared them, mind you, there was constantly clashes between the police and and these ultras. The government feared them significantly and rightfully so because come 2011, the ultras Ahlawi were exceptionally important revolutionaries and components of the Arab Spring. Who would have thought, right? Just hardcore football fans looking for a voice as just young men in a space where there's no voices being disenfranchised in society. And you find it in football and go on to become a revolutionary. That story should really scare all all authoritarians out there and show you the power of sports when utilized organically and when it becomes your only hope in a political vacuum that's completely devoid of free expression. If Mohammed bin Salman... Really doesn't realize right now that by opening up his country, he is—he uh, is in many ways bringing in this potential of of new ways of thinking, of new potential uh, future generations asking and demanding more from him. So football becomes this tool that could be both a double a double-edged sword. Really, he is using it to distract his uh, his his. Uh, his his, his, you know, his, his, his followers and his, his countrymen right now, but that could in an instant turn against them. And you're giving them avenues now where they can connect in these groupings. So I think football is gonna be a space that we have to watch very carefully and because it's it's truly fascinating when you think of its history, its role in politics and government. Sports cannot be separated from all that. But this is just a roundabout way for me to ch- come back to this point and, and try and say, well, with all this growing influence and with this multi-layered approach Saudi's taking, and other countries, as we've seen, have taken successfully, is there really any way to stop Saudi? Is there?
1: No, there there isn't, and um, and but there is a way to um, hit the brakes for a moment. I I mean, play the game was founded more than twenty five years ago so in nineteen ninety seven. And uh, our international director Jens, who is also the founder of Play the Game, sometimes described that Play the Game has both been a big success and also a big, big failure. We've been a big success uh, in terms of highlighting the darker sides of sport throughout the last couple of years, thanks to investigative journalists, academics and so on, who has attended uh, our conference and who have written for our website. There was no platform 25 years ago who were discussing these issues. Uh, the failure is that it's the same issues we discussed today that we discussed 25 years ago. But there has been small steps along the way. And I think we have to realize and accept it's a long game. It's a very long game. And it, and at the moment, we are not winning it at all. It's going uh, it's going the other way, in fact, uh, because Saudi Arabia is the player uh, that they are and because sports leaders are engaging so much with autocratic uh, regimes. But there is small steps to take in terms of governance issues, in terms of human rights issues, into the criteria of awarding these big sporting events. And we can only hope that... Um, the, the things that you see in the journalism, that we talk a lot more about this, will also bring out a new youth uh, population that are much more aware about societal issues. Uh, sometimes I'm, I compare it with the climate change debate. 10, 15 years ago, not that many people were talking about climate change. I at least uh, wasn't at all, and it but no, none of my friends were as well. Uh, Today they are talking about it in my uh, kid's school. He's eight years old and they talk about climate change. And I mean, if they start talking about societal issues in sport, the way that they talk about climate change, we might see activists and change in 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 the coming uh, years. So it's a long game. And of course, no one will ever stop uh, these regimes because the ones who sits on top of the sports federations love to engage uh, with autocratic regimes. Uh, I just remember that uh, Gianfranco, a former uh, sports leader, uh, throughout many years said that, well, it was also much easier to host big sporting events in autocratic uh, nations, because they didn't have to ask anyone. Uh, He took it back later, but um, it was quite uh, real what he said.
0: In many ways, honestly, Stan, I find that What's happening, you're talking about us, it feels like we're losing right now, and we really, it, I mean, even as a journalist, it it really does feel like, at the very least, a Sisyphean feat where you're just rolling the boulder up the hill endlessly and you're getting nowhere at this point. But I've come to accept that this is truly also a reflection of society and the world around us right now. We're not just seeing an increase in authoritarianism in sports, we're seeing it around the world overall. Yep. There is a, a shifting tide right now, and sports gets swept up in that, and, and it's really unfortunate when you think about that because sports, as you mentioned earlier, should be a a, a harbinger for unity and discussion and individual values and and uh, holding up human rights and really being able to use it as a platform to to connect with with other minorities, with to build to build a, a better future. That was supposed to be one of the core values of sports and to see it weaponized the way it is nowadays is extremely disheartening. As a journalist, I have, I think, in, in a way to keep myself going somehow and to motivate myself, I've come to accept that the best I can do really in many cases is to raise awareness. That's really yeah. the best role I can play. When more people come to me and say, hey, Karim, I never knew about this, thank you so much. For opening my eyes that 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 that's a good feeling that tells me that you know things can change every once in a while you're able to change somebody's mind or to just open their mind to to something they weren't thinking about before do you do you agree that currently this is kind of where we're at the stage we're at and if so what do you think what do you have to say to to fans who feel hopeless in this situation as well
1: yeah yeah there's two things i would like to say because. Um, Play the game is based on dialogue among people, also among people who don't have the same opinions. Actually, I think it would be quite boring to sit around a table with people just with the same opinion uh, as me. And I don't think that play the game has the answers to every everything. That also comes to the debate around Qatar and Saudi Arabia. I applaud the discussions, I applaud the debates and we want to raise it at play the game as well. Sometimes though, I have to say that the people from autocratic nations are not that much into engaging in these kinds of debates. So it can be quite uh, difficult to have a debate around these issues with the same people that we are debating so much. Uh, but, But I believe the dialogue is the way forward. And what we are experiencing at the moment in society as general and broader speaking, not uh, in sports politics is a, a, a complete polarization. And I actually also think uh, Kantar contribute a little bit to that in terms of sports politics, because, it, mm-hmm. because of the human rights issues was such a big deal. And We know now that we also saw a very strategic approach from the regime in Qatar starting to call out Western, so-called Western, mainly Western, journalists who were critical about the Qatar regime. If they were not Orientalists, they were, to some extent, racists. And it was quite um, obvious to me that it happened in the last year or so up to the World Cup in Qatar. I started to see the same people saying the same things. I started to see them see the same stuff that the emir of Qatar was saying in his speeches. Um, And it just fueled the debate and it became, well, counterproductive for everyone. uh, And there was, of course, some part of uh, um, the, the coverage that was a little bit racist. I mean, it, it, it's not that it wasn't there, but it, the same people who had fought for years to bring out these stories, bring these stories out to the people were now the one being accused of being racist or orientalist. Uh, and I just, I, I couldn't have that. It wasn't me personally. or some. I was also called uh, stuff, but I was not the one exposing Qatar and FIFA 15 years ago. And now those people who did that were the bad people and that was that was too much for me uh, personally um and uh now i forgot the, your, your initial question but uh just want, want to raise one more thing that you said was very interesting is that um when we talk about you know giving something to the youth they have to get some Sort of entertainment activities you met uh, bread and circuses from the the old Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. this is where uh, I usually disagree with a lot of academics because they want to highlight the reforms that are being carried out in Saudi Arabia, and they want to highlight that, wi- that women are now allowed to drive car that women are now allowed to go into the cinema and there's nothing else in the world that I would want that women could get the same rights and equal rights as men in Saudi Arabia. I want also women to be able to participate in sport. But when the first sentence, when certain people are asked, what what's behind Saudi Arabia's sports strategy? And they don't mention human rights. They don't mention the political agenda, but they start to mention that there is it's part of a broader strategy creating reforms for the youth, I, I think it's, it's more or less the same propaganda that Saudi Arabia wants us uh, to eat. Um, and I heard a human rights activist the other day, a very famous human rights activist, but I don't want to mention uh, the name, saying that uh, because I asked her, um, what do you think of the argument that people say, oh, here you come and want us to get uh, democratic values and Western values and human rights? And she just replied, well, it's propaganda. Of course course we want uh, human rights. And how how can you think that we don't want uh, human rights? Um, And then she said, uh, how can we on one hand applaud the regime's big sporting events, bringing Ronaldo uh, to our country, and then jailing people for speaking out loud about people getting equal rights and I think it was so on point because I believe that the first thing we should mention when we talk about Saudi Arabia and sport is the human rights and governance issues it's not the reforms about uh, women being allowed to go to cinema
0: well I mean they are absolutely utilizing that in element why else would we think they're making such you mentioned earlier you were surprised about Saudi's uh, incursions into tennis I now think in some ways we've reached a a, a, a a whole horseshoe here where we've come to sort of an answer as to why Saudi might be interested in tennis, really. Because you think about it, there is big rumors that the WTA, the Women's Tennis Association, is going to hold its finals in Saudi Arabia. And right now, one of the top players, she is Tunisian. So there's an Arab tennis player At the very top of her game right now saudi arabia absolutely would want to capitalize on something like that and at the same time by hosting more women's events they get to therefore associate themselves more with these so-called claims of reforms again i absolutely agree with you stanis We would all love nothing more than to see equal rights and amongst amongst all peoples, really. But the way Saudi Arabia claims them to be, that's exactly what I would like to see actually take place in the country. But we know, we absolutely know there's more nuance to this. And that's really not the case. There have been superficial reforms. Giving women the right to drive really is such a low bar. The fact that that was a bar that had to be crossed to begin with is, is entirely ridiculous. But the kafala system still exists for migrant workers, right? the male guardianship system is still in place with some slight changes, but it is still in place. This is not an equal society. This remains a patriarchal society. And while things should be able to change at their own pace, Saudi Arabia is the one country that's bringing all this discussion to itself. Uh, by, by by you know again associating itself with women's sports, etc and claiming to have made such changes. So it's, we're going in like, like this roundabout circle and until people start to realize, hey, stop reading out of the you know the public investment funds you know guidebook explaining what their vision 2030 plan is and start trying to really understand what this is about. This goes beyond sports watch. this goes beyond economic development and changes. All those things factor in, but they're not the priority here. That's the real problem. I think that's something that journalists are still wrapping their heads around. Academics are still arguing over, you know we're still having discussions about. And I think fans, which was really the question that I had that I'd asked you that, and I think it's a good one to close things out here, is when we inundate fans with all this information, fans of course, are going to generally think about their sports first my experience with sports fans is they are a fickle bunch they really really are they know how to be fickle and for the most part they can really lack empathy when it comes to uh, prioritizing human rights over defending their own sports and and their loyalties to their sports how do we explain to fans really stress the point that by you standing up for human rights and opposing these incursions into your sports by authoritarian regimes you're actually helping your sport in the long term what do you think about this
1: well i think it's about what you said earlier um bringing it out there writing the stories about the problems that this create for world sport and a problem For the local supporter of a football club in Great Britain, France, Denmark, United States, Egypt, wherever in the world. Well, their concerns is not necessarily connected to the human rights issues in Saudi Arabia. But if they started to realize that it would actually have consequences for their own club, then they might start to get interested. Into creating change and um, go on the streets and demonstrate about multi-club ownerships. If they start to realize what it would actually mean for their own club. And this is not to uh, neglect the human rights issues. In fact, I think it's the most important thing we could ever talk about. That's the human rights issues in Saudi Arabia. Sometimes I take myself, you know, saying that... We would also like to discuss the governance issues related to Saudi Arabia. Then sitting in my little office here thinking, well, what am I even talking about? Governance issues in sport. There's people getting killed f- uh, for doing stuff in the country. Uh, but okay. Um, yeah, that was just a personal thought. But, I get uh, but, it. But fans should realize that it actually poses threats to the integrity in sport and it's not just uh, about multi-club ownerships but it's also about match-fixing issues that will be more and more relevant if the same owner owns multiple clubs uh, in the world and I think we will see more and more of that of course the Manchester City Group is the perfect example uh, of that and in the beginning I was I didn't think that Saudi Arabia would, would go down that road about multi-club ownerships but then they did the th- the stuff that they did in their in their own league, and I mean uh, the public investment fund now own Newcastle, four domestic clubs, and then they have four other state-owned clubs de facto, which is owned by Neom or Aramco and 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 so on. So, uh, and that also creates a threat to the to the world of sport. And I don't like the idea that in multi club ownerships. There's, you know, the crown jewel in the city football group. It will always be Manchester City. So if you are a fan of a a club in uh, one of the countries that they owned another club, uh, it will always be uh, the second choice of the leaders in city football group. So I think that we should start just uh, raising concerns and writing the stories, what it would mean for uh, the fans of, of these clubs. And it can be very abstract because maybe they just, well, in terms of Newcastle, I mean, most of the fans just just happy about the the old owner uh, getting out of the way and uh, now they are having success. So, well, it, it didn't foster the uh, activism against the state ownership from, from Saudi Arabia because they are such a huge success at the moment in Newcastle.
0: Honestly, Stannis, I think you and I can, can talk about this for hours and hours and hours, but uh, it's it's getting late where you are and I, I don't want to keep you up uh, much longer. Just to say, I think you're doing fantastic work. It's great to have uh, what feels like allies and kindred spirits in the space with me. Uh, and yeah, sometimes this can be a really lonely uh, industry and endeavor that we've undertaken. We're not exactly the most popular people amongst uh, sports fans with all this uh, negativity, as they say, that we bring to this. But just to say that I appreciate you and the work you do and the work Play the Game does as well. So thank you very much for taking the time to join us today on the Sports Politica podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Karim.